questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. What do people see as death approaches? What will heaven be like? What will hell be like? Tonight we discuss the deathbed visions of hospice patients, as well as those in a critical care setting who have died and then returned to describe their experience on the other side. The book is titled An Army in Heaven, and it will change how you view life and, most importantly, how you view death. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas. To listen to this entire interview and all of our material, subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Tonight's special guest is Kelly Jankowski. Kelly was in o- was born in Omaha and raised in a small town in eastern Iowa. She is one of seven children. Her father was an ER physician and her mother a homemaker. She worked in cardiac critical care from 1984 through 2010. She began hospice nursing in 2009 and currently works in an inpatient hospice. Kelly is the mother of six children and she joins us directly from Maryland. Hello, Kelly, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. And Kelly, I have to tell you, after reading your book, uh, An Army in Heaven, I was overwhelmed, overwhelmed with, with multiple emotions. And it made me realize that we are here just for a short amount of time and, and we must not only enjoy it as much as we can, but we shouldn't worry so much. But most importantly, that we should spend time with the people that we love or if we can't spend time because circumstances have places far away, we should at least communicate how we feel because we never know when our time is up. Yeah, exactly right. We all have our hour, our day, and our minute, and only God knows it. So you, you, I, people take time, take advantage of time um, when they don't realize how precious it, is, precious it is because most of the patients that I talk to when they're near the end of their lives, they have a I hear over and over and over again, I should have, I didn't need to work every day. I didn't need to pull doubles and I, I should have spent more time with my family. I should have, I wished I could have, and you know, all those regrets and I wish I had done things differently um, surface over and over and over again. Uh, so it really makes you want to treasure the time that you have here and make good use of it. You know, this might not be part of the book, but this will be an interesting discussion after so many years working with patients in ICU and hospice, you must know some common denominator, some things that you keep hearing again and again and again that you should impart upon other people so that they don't repeat the same mistakes if they still have some life ahead of them. Um, the things that we hear over and over and over again are what I just relayed, and I You'll hear different things that I I should have been closer to God. You hear that a lot too. And is He going to accept me because I've basically ignored Him my whole life? <laughs> um, and you have to you kind of have to help people through this because you know towards the end of life we all, we all have to reconcile our our life at the end. Every every single one of us, whether we want to or not. Um, and the repeating thing that people that people say over and over and over again was, am I good enough? Did I do a good enough job? And I wished I'd have done better. We, we hear that all the time. 
And you were an ICU nurse for a long time. Now you're a hospice nurse. But first, what made you want to be a nurse and how and why did you transition from ICU to hospice? Well, having a, a, a physician for a father had a huge impact on me because um, he would come home after work and we'd be sitting around the, the dinner table and, and we'd, he'd tell us about different things that happened and different interesting things that happened. And I really, in my book, the, the I think the pivotal moment for me was when he took care of a, a young boy who was bitten by a rattlesnake. And we're talking small town Iowa. And, and my dad started off in, um, he started off in family practice and then went into emergency room. So back in the day when you didn't have insurance, you know, the insurance issues that we have now, um, anyway, he ended up ambulancing the man or the little boy to um, the University of Iowa hospitals because they didn't have the anti-venom in this little place my dad was working. But the the people that um, brought the boy in also, they had killed the snake, so they brought the snake in with them. And so my dad and, and the other doctors said, let's just take it after the boy was sent off. Let's just take a picture of the snake. So they took an <laughs> x-ray of the snake. And my dad brought it home, and he was holding it up in front of the dining room light, and you could see the you could see the rib cage, and he showed us what was what, and the the spine, and all of a sudden, inside of inside of the snake was was the uh, the skeleton of a rat, and I found it fascinating. I thought, wow, how how neat is that? I was only like in first grade, first second grade, but hearing his stories and the different things that he would do, and and Somebody would come in and they'd be in a motor vehicle accident. They'd be massively bleeding and all the steps he would go through to, to save them. And I was hooked. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's what I want to do when I grow up. I want to be in a position where I can help people. And um, coming from a medical family, um, it kind of he kind of just spurred me on. I don't think I was smart enough to be a doctor. I didn't have the uh, – I didn't want to put another 12 years into school. <laughs> so I decided, well, nursing is good, so. That's what I got started in that. And I fell in love with the heart during nursing school because I found it fascinating. And um, when my first job, they did, I was initially going to be an L&D nurse, believe it or not, but they didn't have any openings. So that my next choice then was cardiology. So I did a year on the floor just trying to get my feet wet and figured out what I was doing as a brand new nurse. And then I went right into um, cardiothoracic ICU down at Methodist Hospital in Houston, Texas. And I worked there for a while. And then I stayed in critical care up in through 2010. And it just got to the point that I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, people would come in with just extensive, irreparable, uh, incurable disease processes, and the family would be screaming at us, you have to do everything. Well, I'm sorry, grandma's in her 90s. <laughs> and it's, it's God is calling. It's written all over her body that God is trying to call her home. Um, and I just felt there was no comfort in it. There was very little dignity in somebody being tied down into bed, shoved full of tubes. And my, I realized that my fa favorite patients to care for were the ones that were DNRs, that we weren't going to do all the heroics to. But then you could, I could facilitate their comfort. I could help their families through the grieving process. Um, and I fell in love with that because I felt like I was making more of a dish, uh, a impact in their lives, not only by caring for them, but helping them through the process on a spiritual level too. And I fell in love with that. And then one of my girlfriends says, have you ever thought about going into hospice? And I really hadn't. And then um, so I started looking around. And then I, I continued critical care while I started hospice. Um, and then I realized very shortly after that that I needed to get out of critical care and do hospice full time. So that's what I did. So you went to 
I guess, well, L&D, and for those who are wondering, all these acronyms, L&D and DNR, labor and delivery and DNR do not resuscitate. But you went for once. No, that's okay. That's okay. (laughs) Just for the layman out there who may not know. But um, in your case, you went from, or we're going to go from one side of the spectrum, labor and delivery, which is the beginning of life. Mm -hmm. You went all the way to the other side, to the end of life. Yeah. It is the most... I mean, I've been a nurse for a really long time, and it is the most fulfilling job I've ever had as a nurse. And a lot of people will find out I'm a hospice nurse, and they'll go, oh, God, that's morbid. How can you do that every day? But they don't see the beautiful side of it. Um, not every death is, is horrible. Um, I've seen absolutely incredibly beautiful deaths. And um, to, to be able to take a family who comes in in crisis Sometimes we get patients into our unit who have only been diagnosed in the ER. They, they ended up with abdominal pain and they end up going to the emergency room and they, they end up getting scanned and they, they find out that they're full of, full of cancer. And then they, when they're told the only option is hospice, they go from the emergency room then into our inpatient hospice. So you're bringing a patient in whose head is still reeling from the diagnosis and here they are in hospice. It's only been a few hours. So you have to help not only the patient through that, but you got to help the family. And it's we get patients in crisis mode all the time. And to be able to work through it just by talking and and um, telling them about what to expect and why this is happening or why he's doing this or what symptom you know presents itself and why and the medications that we can give to calm that down and just helping them through it and then hugging them when the when the end comes and crying with them and it to me it just it was, it's my niche and I found it to be my calling and I, I enjoy going to work every day. I have to say this, Kelly, based on my own experience and that of countless others, if there are angels on this earth, I would say nurses must be in that category. And not to take credit away from doctors, but nurses truly connect with patients. In your case, even to the person's last breath, how do you cope with this on a daily basis? Um, you pray an awful lot. <laughs> you really do. I mean, I, I, ha- I go into work all the time and when I see a patient changing and there, there's no family there, or if the patient doesn't have family or waiting for the family to arrive, I, I pray an awful lot because I'm not, I, I don't judge people. I'm not here to judge anybody. It's not my job, but um, you never know what goes on in people's lives. Um, you never know what suffering they've had, what what issues they've had, um, their relationship with God. Um, so I pray an awful lot for them. I don't. I, I pray under my breath. I'll pray inside my heart. Sometimes I'll pray with them if they ask me to. I don't force it on them. Um, you have to meet people, and especially in a hospice situation, you have to meet people where they are. Um, you can't force your beliefs on them. You can't, you know, judge them for the beliefs they have or don't have. Do you know what I mean? Um, so. Um, I pray an awful lot. I pray for them. I pray for the strength to keep going on because there's a lot of times where you get attached to, to patients and some, some of them, they roll through the door and they immediately have your heart. You know, they can look up at you and smile and immediately you're just like, oh, I love you. <laughs> um, so when they're passing, it's very difficult, but you have to keep your head together because you've got a job to do. Um, so I used to think that it was um, a sign of weakness to cry when a patient died or, you know, 
And I've realized that, oh, good heavens, that's a ridiculous point of view. But I was a young nurse at the time. Um, but I sit down a lot of times and I'll hug my my patient's family members and I'll cry right with them. Um, and it's a very cathartic kind of thing to do. It's, it's a release to get all those emotions out so you don't pen them up inside. You must, I guess it must be reemphasized to you on a daily basis, all the emotions, you know, all the, the do not judge, all the principles that we think all the time that we may not apply on a daily life. But when, after reading your book, you know, we're going to be discussing a lot of these stories, but sometimes you hear of the, a patient situation uh, that they're alone and that the the family might not want to go see for, for many reasons. You think, oh, how, how bad can they be? Why are they so mean to this person? But then you realize what life they went through and you feel compassion for the family too. Yeah, yeah. No, there are plenty of nurses that, that witness what you have experienced for, for years, but it doesn't occur to them to, to write down the experiences. When and why did you decide to document these events? Um, I started really, well, I kind of always, well, I did kind of always keep a journal. Um, I'd write down specific patients and their stories that I found fascinating or ones that touched my heart. And I just kind of, you know, I'd come home from work and while you're winding down after the adrenaline, I would write their stories down. Um, I didn't really, uh, really, really start in, in depth until I met Simon, um, my little patient who had resuscitated in the field and came into our unit um, on a ventilator and he had a massive heart attack. Um, he had an experience um, where he went to heaven and he met his deceased parents and he met Jesus and he saw the beautiful vistas of heaven, um, and they were so detailed um, that I, I asked him um, halfway through it, I, I need to write this down. Would you mind if I wrote this down? He said, absolutely. Go ahead. So I went and grabbed a, a notebook from the nurse's station, and I mean, it was, it was a couple hours. And then after he got discharged from the hospital, we kept in touch, and I'd go over to his house. And he didn't, I don't think he really realized that every time I was over there, quote unquote visiting, I was really interviewing him <laughs> because I wanted to know, I wanted to know more and I wanted to know everything. And I knew him for, for several years um, before he finally passed. But um, his, his story uh, had the biggest impact on me. And then when I met Alan in, uh, when I got into hospice, he had died on the operating table during open heart surgery. And he he point blank said I left it I I led a hedonistic lifestyle. It was all about me. I didn't give a crap about anybody else. Um it was me, me, me. I was selfish to the core. Uh and he ended up his judgment was hell. Um, but thankfully it wasn't permanent and he ended up coming he came back and he told me his story and he when I sat down I crossed my legs and I'm leaning forward and I'm listening to him said, Do you wanna write this down? I said, Absolutely. So I went and did the same thing with Alan and Alan was he was one of our respite patients, um, respite patients in a hospice situation. They get five days a month um, to come into our unit and we take care of them. It gives the family a break, especially if they're full-time caregivers. So he was our respite patient and he would come in very frequently. So he and I developed quite a relationship and quite a rapport with each other. I loved him to death. Um, but in talking to his wife, she said 20 years ago when this happened, this is not the same man. This is not the same man that went into surgery 
it's a completely different man who woke up and he completely changed his life and he was he was a deer but they, now, they, they had the biggest impact you when you work in ICU correct me if I'm wrong but or even in in hospice sometimes you have to resuscitate if there's not a DNR do not resuscitate or the family hasn't communicated this or if the patient hasn't agreed but sometimes you have people who are very very elderly and they you know you have a you have a story that I don't think is in the book of the no, the oldest person in Maryland tell us about that yeah well we we ended up resuscitating a woman who was the oldest living Marylander at the time. She's 105 years old. And you cannot do chest compressions on someone that old without doing damage. Um, I bet I was, I was cracking ribs. I could hear it. And I looked over at the cardiologist and I'm like, what, what are we doing? This is insane. This is insane. <laughs> this is, this is not what we should be doing. And he pointed like, he said, the family wants everything done. I said, she's 105. The resuscitation efforts didn't go on very long. Um, and before he called it because she was beyond, she was beyond repair. She was, she was so old. God love her. It was, it was heartbreaking. And I, I thought long and hard after that, I, it was just really what I want to do. Do I, do I want to inflict this kind of pain on somebody on their last moments who are like I described before, they're, they're on a ventilator, their hands are tied down because you don't want them pulling out the, all the tubes and they've got tubes everywhere and they end up dying on a ventilator in a unit it's I just couldn't do it anymore I just so I, I actively started looking after uh, that instance with her that is incredible that sometimes you know people want I remember and I don't mean to talk about myself but with my when I lost my first next of kin my father in 1994 I remember how he was in a coma brain dead he had a massive heart attack but they kept resuscitating and again and again and again and I just I was a representative, and I had to tell him that the, the 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 doctor do not resuscitate, and that was very hard for me. But yeah. you know, after doing all the testing and the you know, water in the ears, and the you know what I mean, uh, the needles on the on the and the uh, fingers, you have to let go sometimes, don't you? Yeah. yeah, you do, and 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 people don't they don't tell you the automatic guilt that comes with making a decision like that. Um, to make somebody a do not resuscitate because mm -hmm. always in the back of your mind, it's like, did I do enough? Should I've tried that? What if, have, right? You know? Right. And um, I don't think you can get away with that. I, I think because everybody I've encountered that have had to make that, make that decision, they all have that, that feeling. So I warned them about it ahead of time. I said, they're not going to, you know, it's automatically, it happens automatically. I went through it with my father when my father passed and I was his um, medical POA and um, when we brought him from Iowa to here to Maryland, because he had um, prostate cancer that had gone into the bone, um, and I got him enrolled in the, in the hospice that I worked at, um, and we talked about the DNR, and my father was adamant. He says, yeah, I don't want all that. I mean, he was a physician, so he knew what was involved, but I, I, I had to sign the papers, and it was difficult. Even after, even after he passed, um, different things would enter my mind and I ended up taking it to my um, my parish priest to talk to him about it because all of those doubts came through and he said no you don't worry about it this is this is normal you're you're doing a normal thing but what you did was right in the in the whole scheme of things what you did was right so that that helped but even and I was a hospice nurse at the time and I had those feelings so 
you, I can imagine somebody that doesn't have any sort of medical background, what goes through their head when they're forced with a decision like that. It's difficult. It's very difficult. Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.